Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. What are monks and nuns good for? Last week we looked at the Dharma, in particular how the Dharma started out in pristine purity with the Buddha, but then it evolved and diversified in the various Buddhist lands and cultures. Then we made two seemingly inconsistent observations. One, the Dharma has changed all over the place, adopting new teachings from the local cultures, losing or adapting old teachings, adopting new scriptures and losing old. A prime example not mentioned last week might be Pure Land Buddhism, widespread in East Asia, in which A primary practice is worship of the living cosmic Buddha, Amitabha, so that he might share his merit to assure you a rebirth in his divine realm. Second, the Dharma has stayed roughly the same, maintaining a foundational core in historically and geographically quite divergent schools for instance, in all three of the primary branches of the sasana. We want to focus here on this anomaly between the free-wheelingness and the orthodoxy of the Dharma. Fortunately, this kind of anomaly is common in human society. Consider epidemiology, for instance. We are in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, And the news media, social media, and person-to-person conversation is awash with diverse claims about what is going on and how best to respond. Politicians, preachers, and marketers get involved. Yet underlying all the noise, I would be willing to bet my bowl that the informed scientific study of Epidemiology is progressing just fine under the noise and above the fray. We might say that there are two epidemiologies. The real one, developed by the experts, by the adepts, by the professionals, and the fake one, engaged in by common folk, by the uninformed, by the mob, unfortunately with great passion and conviction. Note that the adepts don't look to the common folk for understanding, but perhaps most of the common folk, like me, for instance, look to or at least try to look to the adepts for understanding. Epidemiology is particularly a vivid example because it is highlighted in current political discourse and even in the ongoing culture wars. But almost any field of expertise or adept knowledge has a similar folk shadow. There's folk science, for instance, popular understandings of genetics, of the laws of motion, and so on. There's popular art, music, literature, which appeals to popular tastes. And there's fine art, etc., 
which appeals to the refined sensibilities, particularly of those actually trained and engaged in the various art forms. One is a shadow of the other. Buddhism is the same. There is adept Buddhism upheld by those who are most highly trained and most engaged in its practice. And there is folk Buddhism, the understanding and practices of common adherents who generally in Asia come from Buddhist families but have an imperfect understanding of its teachings and values. Notice that folk Buddhism, just as folk art or folk science, is actually a kind of continuum, since people vary in the degree of adept knowledge that they might possess. It would seem that every case of the adept-folk dichotomy is upheld institutionally in any particular society. Modern universities play an especially major role in modern societies in promoting adept knowledge and skills and in defining adept communities. Generally, a PhD designates the most adept of the adept. Also in previous times, trade guilds were very prominent in this function, in the various crafts, defining standards of training and production. Government regulations and licensing served to qualify adept engineers, contractors, vintners in France, and so on. I imagine that in the early days when cars started populating our streets and traffic regulations were first being introduced, that there was a mix of adept drivers and folk drivers behind steering wheels. It's important to acknowledge that institutional recognition is different from being an adept. All institutions leak. There are trained and degreed people who never become adepts, and there are those without training and certification, but a lot of innate talent and experience who do become quite adept. This is true certainly in music literature and the arts, but also in science as well. Still the claim, out of the way, I'm a professional, tends to carry a lot of social gravitas. The institution that upholds the adept-folk dichotomy in Buddhism is called the Sangha. It's the community of monks and nuns, bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. It was established by the Buddha and, seemingly characteristic of whatever the Buddha touched, it seems to be nearly the most successful and durable social institution on the planet. There is as yet almost nothing written about the internal and external social dynamics of the Sangha. It is shaped by the Vinaya, the Buddha's monastic code, but the Vinaya itself provides a lot of regulations with little explanation of its own overarching logic. That is what I want to explore here in the next couple of talks. When the Buddha returned to visit his princely home after his alms-financed awakening, he continued his rounds in the streets of Kapalawattu, much to the distress of his aristocratic father. The alms round was, for the Buddha, a key feature of the monastic life. 
Even when food was close at hand, the alms round was not to be disregarded. For the Buddha, the alms round was not simply a way to feed the monks and nuns. It had a social role to play in realigning the values of both monastic and laity. A monastic is like a house pet, helpless on his own, absolutely and vulnerably dependent on the kind hand that feeds him, but at the same time of therapeutic value to that same hand, not to mention cute as a kitten in his fluffy robes and with his bald head. Like a house pet, a monastic lives a simple life, needs and possesses a little. He does not have a motorboat on the lake, nor a puppy he is working to put through college. He is a deliberate renunciate with a lifestyle that leaves almost no channels for the pursuit of sensual pleasures, the accumulation of stuff, the quest for personal advantage, nor the intractable issues that accompany these. The effect is that he settles, if the mind remains steady, into a state of quiet contentment, a fertile field of practice indeed. Accepting the generosity of the lay graciously, having no resources at all of one's own that are not donated, puts the monastic in an uncommon frame of reference, but does the same for the lay donor as well. Remarkably, every time the monastic accepts something, the lay donor receives a gift. This is paradoxical to the Western observer, but if you look again, you cannot mistake the sugar plums dancing in the donor's eyes. Every time the layperson accepts a teaching or benefits from a social or pastoral service, the monastic receives a gift. The relationship is unlike what one finds in conventional human affairs. This is an economy of gifts, one that provides much of the context of the most fundamental Buddhist value and practice, that of dana, Pali for generosity. The Buddha imagined a harmonious Buddhist community of laity and monastics and he brought this community to light by organizing the monastic sangha. His idea seems to have been that the presence of the monastic sangha would shape the entire community, the laity taking on its roles entirely voluntarily, in particular without formal obligations enforced by some kind of command structure or threats of excommunication. Whereas we find the sublime in the Dharma, we find in the Buddha's institutional teachings nuts and bolts pragmatism. The Sangha is an institution, but the core purpose of this institution is to produce nobility, much as the core purpose of the university is to produce scholars. The noble ones, Arya or nobility, are what the Buddha called all those who have reached, through Buddhist practice, at least a certain level of spiritual attainment, that of the stream-enterer. The Buddha co-opted the meaning of the term noble or Arya. In India, the Aryas were the upper classes, the nobility, which was created through the Aryan invasion of India by lighter-skinned people from Central Asia. 
Martin Luther King famously said, I look to the day when people will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. This is the Buddha's way of saying the same thing. From the perspective of the laity, the Sangha thereby is intended to produce saints, the finest and admirable friends, and people whose behavior are worth emulating in people's own practice of the Dharma, now and in the years to come. The founding charter of the Sangha, the Winya, provides the optimal training conditions for the practice that produces noble ones. It also sustains a wholesome and inspiring influence on the broader Buddhist community, and, as we will see, it ensures the future integrity of the Dharma and the sasana, the historical playing out of the Buddha's teachings in society. The Sangha has striking parallels with science as an institution. The disciplined community of scientists organized largely within universities and research institutions. Each, the monastic community and the scientific community, is a complex system responsible for many things, for training its members, for authorizing its teachers, for maintaining the integrity of its tradition against many misguided and popular notions, for upholding pure standards whereby its results can be assessed, for encouraging the growth, prosperity, and longevity of its functions, for rewarding patience where results are not immediately forthcoming, for maintaining harmony among its members, for nurturing a positive perception in the public eye. Just as scientific discipline is intrinsic to the practice and perpetuation of science, and science as we would know it would collapse without it, Winia is intrinsic to the practice and perpetuation of the Buddha Sasana and Buddhism in all its depth would collapse without it. Both institutions are conservative, exhibiting relatively little change over the centuries. Of course, I'm talking about scientific discipline, not the products of science. From these parallels, I will draw helpful analogies to better understand the function of the Sangha in terms of the, presumably for most listeners, more familiar scientific institution. It's not often enough stated that the founding of the Sangha was a truly monumental achievement. Although there were ascetics in India before the Buddha, Richard Gombrich tells us, among all the bodies of renouncers, it was only the Buddhists who invented monastic life that is, who provided an organized institution capable of sustaining its teachings. Gombrich makes this further striking observation. The Buddhist Sangha is likely the world's oldest human organization in continual existence on the planet. What is more, the Sangha is still entirely recognizable in terms of attire, lifestyle, practice, and function after a hundred generations. It was there as great empires, the Roman, Mongolian, Arab, 
Lithuanian, Mayan, and British arose and grew. It was still there as each of those empires collapsed. From India, it extended its civilizing reach to Ceylon and Southeast Asia and into Indonesia, into Central Asia, where it followed the Silk Road eastward into China and East Asia and westward as far as the Mediterranean. In modern times, it has begun to board airplanes and sprinkle down on North America, Europe, Australia, South America, and even Africa. Buddhism has never penetrated new lands nor established itself without the Sangha. Yet, in spite of its robustness, the Sangha is delicate without any centralized authority or substantial hierarchy. Its governance is based on the consensus of local communities of monks and nuns. Its regulations are enforced through an honor system, and its support is completely entrusted to the goodwill of others. The Buddha could have set up a hierarchy with something like a pope and bishops and a range of severe punishments for transgressing authority, but he did not. Who would have thought it would last? This amazing institution is the product of one genius who cobbled it together from diverse elements present and observed among the ascetics of his time, clearly articulated for it a mission and a charter and released it into the world. And this genius is the very same person who revealed the Dharma among the most sophisticated and skillful expounded products of the human mind, and the very same person who attained complete awakening without a teacher to light the way, the threefold genius we call the Buddha. Here's an interesting but rather outrageous speculation that might explain the parallels between science and the Sangha. Modern universities have their origins in the Buddhist Sangha. If someone is looking for a dissertation topic, this might be it. The great Buddhist universities of the first millennium AD in India were Sangha-based institutions. But before that, there is some evidence that Christian monasticism has its origin in Buddhist monasticism as well. As Buddhist influence spread westward along the Silk Road to the Mediterranean, this is the most speculative part, but imagine if it's true. Universities in Europe, in their turn, began for the most part as Christian monastic institutions in the second millennium AD, parallel to the situation in India. There you have it. Highly speculative, but intriguing. On his deathbed, the Buddha refused to appoint a successor, saying to the surrounding monks, what I have taught and explained to you as Dharma and discipline, Vinaya, will at my passing be your teacher. The Vinaya is fundamentally about community and about the monastic lifestyle, the life in accord with the Dharma, and thereby the most direct path to higher attainments. The Vinaya is addressed indeed to monks and nuns, but throughout it emphasizes their responsibility to the Buddhist lay community. 
The Buddha's teachings on community provide the mechanism through which the light of the Buddha's teachings burns brightly, through which it spreads to attract new adherents, and through which it retains its integrity as it is passed on to new generations. Next week, we'll begin to examine an interesting passage from the Winia. The Buddha, it turns out, gave us a mission statement for the Sangha in 10 bullet points. We can use that in order to understand the internal and external social dynamics of the Sangha, which produces the structure of the Sasana, including its adept-folk dichotomy, and has determined the course of Buddhist history. <laughs> 